Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. I'm ready for my close-up. My name is Olivia. I'm six and a half. What grade did you just finish? Kindergarten. My name is Abby. I'm eight years old. What grade did you just finish? Second grade. And what did you learn in second grade? Um, I kind of forgot. God said flood because there's bad people in the village, so he needs to protect his family and the animals so they didn't get hurt. How big do you think Noah's Ark was? 50 inches? Probably. If you were on the Ark and you had to sleep by an animal, which one would you choose? The giraffe. Because um, uh, their long neck could like swoop down and then put their neck around me and then like it's like a little pillow. What did they do with all the animals after they got off the boat? Let them be happy and then get some fresh air. What do you think makes the animals happiest? Being all together. And where did all the water go? to all the drains. The boat is going through the water and then um, getting through all the houses and the giraffe went outside to get some more water. The, The king, he liked Daniel, but there were these three men that hated him. So they asked the king to make a law to, to, for everybody to only worship him for, um, I don't know. And they saw Daniel in his window, he was praying to God. And so they told the king and he had to be thrown into a lion's den. How many lions do you think were in there? Five. Five. What would you do if you found yourself in a pit with five lions. I don't know what I would do. Yeah. What do you think Daniel did? Ask God to help him. Um, Daniel's just in there with the lions and he, and then the king, he, the next day he rolls over the stone on the top and he's like, are you alive? And he's like, yes I am. Very good. And what does this story teach us? To pray to God no matter what. Now today we're looking at an imperfect believer 
that many of us call by his nickname, the Beloved Disciple. Now, if you do a little research on who is this beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, you can see a lot of theories out there. And so I had to do a lot of research to make sure I'm sharing truth with you, but I can tell you that the most reliable sources say that the beloved disciple was none other than John the disciple. Now, we know through tradition that John was the youngest of all 12 of Jesus' disciples. So how young was he? Well, culture during the time of Christ dictated that if you were between 5 and 12 years old, you would go to a form of school. You would learn uh, religious studies, and you would go to school, learn mathematics and and other um, subjects. When you were done with your 5 to 12-year-old school, then you had an option. If you were intelligent, you showed promise, uh, you could choose between the ages of 13 and 15 to go and study with a rabbi. So as early as 13 years old, you could become a disciple of a rabbi. Now, we know that Jesus chose individuals at different stages of their life, but we tend to focus on the disciples, and in our minds, we've painted a picture that the disciples were a bunch of old, bearded, barrel-chested, tough men that followed Jesus around. But chances are, it's actually more likely that the disciples were between the ages of 13 and in their mid-20s. You were, as a student of a rabbi, to study until you were age 30, and you could not become a rabbi yourself until you reached the age of 30. Kind of answers why Jesus' ministry started when he was age 30. It was the custom of the day. So imagine this. Jesus calls 12 disciples, and one of the first, if not the first disciple that he called is as young as 13 years old. He not only calls John, he calls his brother James, who we know was older than John because his name is always listed first, which is customary in the culture to list people uh, and honor people who are older, and then you list them out as they get younger. And so John was always listed James and John. Peter was older. He was married, which means he was older than 17. And he might not have been much older than that. So imagine... Pastor Doug Mace leading 12 of his junior high and some high school students around. They're going around campus. He's teaching them about the character of God and the kingdom of God. And it's a bunch of these young kids running around. And you would have a more accurate picture of what it looked like, Jesus leading his 12 disciples. That created quite a problem for the beloved disciple. Why? Well, first of all, one of his imperfections was that he was young. Now, young people today, I want you to understand, this is not a a huge negative because every single person who is sitting here at one time in their life, no matter what they tell you, they were young once. And no matter what they tell you, they made mistakes simply because they were young. Can I hear an amen? I thought that would be a quiet amen. 
Now, I just this month started my 27th year of pastoral ministry, and out of these 26 years I've worked so far, 22 of them have been spent with youth and young adult ministry. I've spent a fair amount of time with young people. And so as I read about Jesus calling John, at age 13, I can't help but laugh because I know some of the conversations that Jesus had with his disciples. In working with the young people, especially uh, the six years that I served as chaplain of Pacific Union College, I had a very consistent conversation. I especially loved meeting with the theology students who were planning to become full-time pastors, and I would meet with them in my office, and inevitably a, a certain conversation would take place. It was very, very common for a young person to say to me, look, I'm excited about being a pastor, but I'll tell you one thing, that will stop me, is if I go to a church and it's, it's political, I can't take the politics. I, if, if there's a bunch of politics at the church I'm going to, I'm just, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna go into teaching or I'll become a dentist or I'll become a medical professional and that way I won't have to deal with the politics. Okay. Now I'm in Loma Linda and I have to say how nice it is to be in a community of teachers at Loma Linda University and with dentists and with medical professionals. Aren't we blessed that we don't have to deal with politics? Can I hear an amen? <laughs> Isn't it just wonderful to live in a politic-free community? I would laugh just like you're laughing. I'd say, look, the rule is if you get two people in one room, you have politics. You can't help it. People are politics, and ministry is people. And I would spend the time trying to help them understand what ministry really is. It's loving people. It's caring for people. It's walking with people and helping people meet your best friend, Jesus. But the youthful experience is imperfect specifically because as a youth, you don't have much life experience. And so John begins his discipleship journey with two strikes against him. He's young, and he doesn't have experience. When I was a Bible teacher from 1997 to 2000 at Sacramento Adventist Academy, I continued a tradition that had been carried on before me. There were incredible pastors, Pastor Crabtree, uh, Craig Heinrich, others who would take the senior class out for two and a half days on a camp out. They called it Senior Survival. And it really was that. When I took over, uh, I decided, you know what? Let's go up into Sierra Nevadas up near the Yuba Gap. There are trails there that no car is allowed to get anywhere near. And let's just hike up next to these glacial lakes. There's water there for us to use. But I also decided to change one other thing. Until I was there, the pastors would plan out the meals, and they would divide into the students' packs different food items so they could make soup or stew and have bagels and stuff like that. In my philosophy, I believe one of the major elements of survival is learning how to be prepared. And so on the whiteboard, I would write out, you have three breakfasts, you have three lunches, and you have two dinners. What are you going to make? What are you going to make out in the wild? You only have a campfire. Are you going to make something that requires cooking? You have to think about that because you only have a campfire. Don't bring a lot of canned goods because, boys, you can't have your packs heavier than 45 pounds. Girls, try to aim for about 25 pounds. Otherwise, you're going to leave that pack along the trail some point of our journey. 
And so they would plan ahead. The second year that we did this, I had, I had just finished making breakfast the first morning. I'd made some breakfast tacos. I'm eating them. And I look over, and Jack, one of the senior students, is standing there eating a bowl which looks like yellow soup. Now, Jack was a foreign exchange student from China, so I thought maybe this is a different type of soup I've never seen before. Maybe this is something that's traditional. And so I said, Jack, what are you eating? And he pulls out of his back pocket this silver package. It looked like one of those packages you'd get at a camping store or a sporting goods store. And he holds it up and he says, well, it's supposed to be scrambled eggs, but it just doesn't taste right. And I said, Jack, you got to cook that. He goes, no, no, no. It says right here, just add water. I said, Jack, you got to read the rest of the instructions. Because you got to cook that. You're going to get sick. Later on that day, it's dinner time. We set up camp at a different location. There's five different campfires. I'm walking to each campfire, making sure the kids are doing okay. Because some of these kids have never been camping in their life. And you can't, camp, uh, you can't count putting a tent next to a motorhome as camping. These kids, many of them had never been without their parents before. And many of them looked as if they expected their mom to come in with a helicopter and do a supply drop right there so they would be able to eat. And I'm sure there were many mothers at home calling to see if they could rent a helicopter. But these kids were on their own. And so I walked by this one campfire, and there were three senior girls huddled around a blue box of mac and cheese. And they're trying to figure out how to cook this mac and cheese with the campfire. And with all seriousness, one girl looks up to me and she says, Pastor Rice, how do we make medium heat? <laughs> I said, well, you make large heat and then you make it smaller. <laughs> and then I said, your poor husbands. When you guys get married, I'm praying for your husbands. They're going to starve to death. When you take people out of their element, when they haven't had life experience, they can't help it. You can't help it. One of the things that frustrates us the most is when we have to do new things. And John, the beloved disciple, has to do new things constantly. And it led to a lot of challenges in his life, in his ministry, in trying to develop what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ. And he's got all these strikes against him. Everyone's saying, oh, you don't understand. You're just too young. You're too inexperienced. And some of you understand what that feels like today. Because you feel God's call in your heart, but everyone's saying you're too young and oh, yeah, that's cute. But wait till you're my age and, and you're calloused and you're cynical and then you can do ministry. So he had those two strikes against him, imperfections that he couldn't even help just simply because of his age. But as we read through the gospel stories, we can see that there are other imperfections. We paint John with this beautiful picture. All we think of him is the disciple Jesus loved. He's leaning against Christ. He's the closest, the one who got to experience some of the most amazing stories that even nine of the other disciples did not get to see. But the reality of the picture that's painted by the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, shows a much different picture. We see a young man who has a very short temper. And we read in Mark chapter 9 how they're trying to go through Samaria. And the Samaritans are not being respectful to Jesus. 
and they're not welcoming to Jesus. And so what does John say? Hey, Jesus, should we call down fire onto Samaria and have it utterly destroyed? This guy's got a temper. He's saying, Jesus, should we commit genocide? Because the character of God that I know says, if you disrespect God, he's going to wipe you from the face of the earth. Jesus says, no, um, hang, hang on, calm down. John has this fiery, short-fused temper. We also know in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus gives John and his brother James a nickname, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. These guys, when they fight, there's no whispering. When they fight, it's loud, it's thunderous. Not only has a hot temper, but doesn't know how to control it in public. Several years ago, I was, uh, I was working, and there was a church nearby that I went to, and they needed a young adult ministry. There was no young adult Sabbath school, and so I volunteered to try to build up a young adult Sabbath school. Now, there was a young man, very talented, very gifted, who said he would volunteer and help, and he did great for several weeks, and then he started becoming flaky and not showing up. And so one Sabbath, I see him in the church foyer after the young adult Sabbath school. I say, hey, what's, what's going on? You doing okay? And he just blows up. It's thunderous. Everyone hears. He says, I thought you said this was going to be a successful young adult ministry. I thought you said we would have 25 people in that room. I thought you said that this would be a great growing young adult group. And it's not. And I'm just sick. I'm tired of it. This blew up. It's interesting to see what happened over the coming years. Um, I got a letter from him. He had just returned from 10 months being a student missionary where he was in charge. He was the teacher. He was the leader. He was the one that everyone was complaining to because the program wasn't what they hoped the program would be. And so the letter I received from him right when he returned from the mission field was, I'm so sorry. And on and on and on about how bad he felt for blowing up because he didn't realize in his youth how hard it is to do ministry, how difficult it is to be the person in charge, the leader that everyone looks to and says, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? So I received the first letter. I replied back to the first letter, hey, it's no problem. I totally understand. I was in your shoes too. I went off on other people myself too. But now that I have experience, I'm a lot more sensitive to those who are in leadership positions. It's okay. All is forgiven. All is forgotten. Weeks later, uh, weeks later I got a second letter. Same thing. Guilt-ridden. I feel so bad. I feel horrible. This is what just happened. I, it just reminded me. I got a third letter, a fourth letter, until finally I, I gave him a call. I said, look, all is forgiven. You're okay. It's understandable because in our youth, in our zeal, in our passion, we are thunderous because we want to see God at work. We want to see success, and then we place it into the real world, and it's just not the same. John, the beloved disciple, had to go through that same growing experience. This young, inexperienced, short-fused, thunderous, disciple of Christ. And it still gets worse. Because in Matthew 20, we see that John and his older brother James have been talking around the dinner table. 
They've been telling their mom, Salome, hey, guess what? Jesus is about to announce his kingdom. And in their conversation around the table, everyone starts talking about their ambitions. And John is not devoid of self-ambition and self-promotion. And so as the family talks about it, the mother does what many of you moms do. Before helicopters existed, Salome helicopters her way all the way over to Jesus and says, by the way, when your kingdom comes, I just want to make sure, okay, my boys have been really close with you. You're taking them into these really private sessions. When your kingdom comes, they've got the places of honor, right? John's self-promotional. His concern is that he be important when Jesus comes into his true kingdom. But it still gets worse. At Jesus' greatest time of need, Jesus brings those three, Peter, James, and John, along with him. They've experienced some really close, very intimate experiences seeing the very nature of God. Jesus calls them into the room of Jairus' daughter. They get to see with their own eyes Jesus touch a blue-gray hand of a, of a dead girl. And they get to see the very place that Jesus' fingers touch. Her hand begin to regain color and that race up her arm and her purple lips turn pink and her glassy eyes sparkle again as they look at the face of Jesus. And she sits up and takes in another breath of life from God. They get to witness that themselves. Even greater than that, John gets to see on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus do something that, quite frankly, we have a very difficult time describing. They get to view Jesus himself, take off his earthly disguise, and show what he looks like in true heaven form. And yet, Jesus needs one more intimate experience with Peter, James, and John. But John can't stay awake. You have those friends where you say, hey, can you help me out? They say, sure. And then you wait and you wait and you wait and they never show up. Or these people that you say, hey, can you come help me? And they show up for a little while and then they leave when the work gets too hard. This is Jesus' experience with John, who is not as supportive as Jesus needs him to be. In fact, Jesus has to wake them three times. And finally, he just gives up and says, here he is. Jesus is coming. Judas is coming with the soldiers. Non-supportive. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are the stories you read. And whenever you see John, you see imperfection. And then John decides, you know what? It's time for me to write the great news story. And as he decides to write the story of Christ and his gospel, he decides to do something artistic. He decides, first of all, that he will never, ever, in his telling of the Christ story, he will never use his own name. You can read the gospel of John all the way through and never read the name John once. Instead, in its place, and depending on which commentator you read, five times or six times, Every time he refers to himself, he calls himself the beloved disciple or the disciple Jesus loved. 
And we have to ask ourselves the question, why would he do that? Why would he stop using his name to identify himself and start using this this phrase? Did he think he was better than the other disciples? Did he think that Jesus loved him more than all the others? Because if that's the case, I'm not sure he understands the character of God. So surely that's not the case. Peter, uh, excuse me, John decides to do something to differentiate himself from Peter and James. And he decides to give himself a nickname, to re-identify himself, to define himself by the greatest life change that Jesus brought into his experience. As he looked back and he saw, man, I made so many mistakes as a young person, in the same way that many of you are so thankful that we didn't know you when you were younger. All we see is who you are now. John says, that's all I want you to see now as well. Because as you identify with me, I don't want you to identify with my imperfections. I want you to understand my identity is completely wrapped up in the fact that I am loved by Jesus Christ. And I learned how to love from Jesus Christ. And I learned the true definition of love from Jesus Christ. And that's why he writes in some of his other writings. In 1 John 4, 10, he tries to define love as Christ defined it to him. And he says this, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what love is. And John says, whenever you think of me, I want you to understand what it feels like to be Loved. I am the beloved disciple. Because when Jesus Christ came into my life, he didn't simply teach me truth. He taught me what true love really is all about. And that's why in John's gospel, it's so different from all the other three gospels, because it has things the other gospels don't have, and it's all about truth, absolutely drenched with the flavor of love. It's hard to go to a professional football game and not see one of John's uh, writings there. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. In John's gospel, it's the only gospel that records in chapter 13 that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, the greatest act of love and humility. And later on in that same chapter, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, it's the only place you can find the defining characteristic of how will the world recognize you as a follower of Jesus Christ. When Jesus himself said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. And then two chapters later, in chapter 15, John helps us see Christ's words that said, greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. To John, love was everything. John's not trying to say, and perhaps we've misinterpreted for centuries what John is trying to say. He's not saying he was loved more. He's saying my life was changed because once my identity was not based on my past mistakes and it was based on the love of Jesus Christ, I became a new creation in Christ. I am no longer the individual who made mistakes. I am a disciple loved by God. 
And although the other writers of the Gospels show my exterior, much like the geode that Joey showed us during the children's feature, and all they see is this rough, ugly exterior, I choose to define myself by the beautiful thing that God has done within me, by defining what true love really is. You have to imagine John being the son of a commercial fisherman, his life experience in understanding what the definition of love is probably did not come from his father Zebedee. I'm going to go way out on a limb here. I know some commercial fishermen. Do you know some commercial fishermen? Uh, they're not the softest people you can meet. They're hard. They have to be. They're rough. They get up before everyone else. They work so hard. Can you imagine a commercial fisherman as his workers are leaving saying, by the way, do you know I love you? Just want to make sure before you go home, you're loved. Love you, Bob. Love you, Joe. Hey, love what you did today. Please know I love you. If there's a commercial fisherman out there like that, you know I'm going to get an email. <laughs> and I think you're amazing, but you're an outlier. You're not typical. And so John probably grew up in a home, like many of you probably grew up in a home, where your father never said, I love you. You did not learn the definition of love from your father. I talked to someone just two weeks ago who said, I'll talk to my dad on the phone, and I'll specifically say, I love you. And he'll say, hey, it was great talking with you. It was so nice spending time with you. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yeah, dad, I love you. Uh, you know what? It was so great spending time with you can't say it back. There are whole generations that have a difficult time saying, I love you, and they're not defining what love is. Perhaps that's been your experience. Can I give you some really, really good news today? It's not our heavenly parents that define what love really is anyways. You have a heavenly father who says, I love you in a way that's so infinite you can never fully comprehend it. We serve a father who says, I want to show you what it feels like to be loved. You are my beloved disciples. Stop thinking about all the mistakes of your past. I love the story about a Japanese artist who once he had became famous and really mastered his craft. He went on a world tour. He went around the world specifically to find every painting he had done when he was younger. Paintings he had done simply to buy food and to pay his rent and to get a little cash. But paintings that he felt didn't truly define to the world what he was capable of. And so he went on a world tour, either exchanging for some of his more recent paintings or buying back those paintings because all he wanted to be identified with is the mature artist he had become. In that same way, when John writes his gospel, he says, I don't want you to see me based upon all of my early development. When you talk about me, I want you to talk about what only Christ can do inside of me. He taught me what it means to be loved. And he can do the same for you too. And I have to tell you, as I look at John's experience as an imperfect believer, I can't help but get really excited today 
Because it means it doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter how dishonest you've been. It doesn't matter how you've acted and, and what you've said towards people. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made, how unsuccessful you've been, how many marriages you've gone through, or how many uh, just absolute horrible things that you've said to anybody. It does not matter. Because if you can finally let Christ's words sink into you and the very gospel that John is trying to share with you, if you can let that sink into your core, you realize it doesn't matter what the world sees on the outside. Once you realize that you are loved by God, it changes your very identity. And from then on, you don't define yourself by your mistakes. You define yourself by God's love. And that's what allows you to step forward and be the disciple, the growing disciple that God's called you to be, to go into the places he's called you to go. It is our constant obsession with the exterior of what we've done and what people see that keeps us from being what God has made you ultimately to do and the purpose in which he's called you into. Can I give you some really good news today? Despite how imperfect you've been up to now, God still loves you. He wants you to experience what it feels like to be loved so that you too can experience what it is to be a disciple whom Jesus loves.